Welcome to the Modern Minehoff Podcast. I am your host, Richard Huffman, expert in all things Modern Meinhof. Uh, this is the only podcast devoted to, yet unaffiliated with, the Modern Meinhof Gang. We talk about the Modern Meinhof Gang, the Red Army Faction, left-wing urban terrorism of the 1970s, and other related ephemera. And today we have uh, an interview with an author, um, journalist, Hans uh, Kunani, who is a British uh, journalist who's covered um, Germany, um, or covered Germany for British publications over the last decade or so. And he has a new book called Utopia or Auschwitz, which uh, explores the 1968 generation of Germany and how the Holocaust has played into its thinking and how the Holocaust affected its um, the way it developed and, and how over the last you know 40 years or 30, 30 to 40 years since um, the, the 1968 generation had its heyday, how it uh, developed and influenced the way um, these people entered politics and went in various directions. It's a fascinating interview. This, this is a really excellent, excellent book. And I think part of the reason it's so good is because he's a journalist. So he can tell stories as well as do the really um, deep analysis that he provides. So you'll get a lot of snapshot um, stories about different players that, of course, I talk about on my website, like Horst Mahler and and um, Rudy Duchka and others, um, but in a really readable um literate way. So I encourage anybody who's interested in this era to consider picking up this book because it's really excellent. So without further ado, here is my interview. I hope you enjoy it. Um, Okay, so cool. Well, I very much appreciate you uh, speaking with me about your new book. Can you tell me a little bit about your new book, what uh, what it's about? Well, it's called um, Utopia or Auschwitz, Germany's 1968 Generation and the Holocaust. And it's um, about the so-called 1968 generation in Germany and its relationship essentially with the Nazi past. Um, The 1968 generation in Germany, um, this is essentially the the post-war generation in in Germany, um, kind of like the baby boomers in in the US, um, who uh, grew up um, uh, after the war. And... um, um, in the German context, these are essentially the children of the Nazis, and so they have this very um, kind of complicated relationship with their parents, um, with their parents' generation, and through that, with the um, with the whole question of the Nazi past and the responsibility of their parents um, for Nazism, and in particular for the Holocaust. Um, and um, and and so, what I found interesting about this was um, uh, the way that. Uh, this is a whole kind of other dimension to 1968 in Germany that um, makes um, uh, makes it different from um, the um, uh, protest movements that were taking place in other parts of the world, like um, in the US and the UK and in France, um, as well as being a protest against um, the Vietnam War and all the same kinds of things that, um, that people were protesting about, uh, for example, in the US. Um, 1968 was also a protest about the Nazi past, about the silence about the Nazi past, um, and um, uh, about the way that uh, their parents' generation uh, had um, uh, had, had um, uh, essentially not engaged with the Nazi past. And, and to a great extent, 
these folks they viewed um, the Nazis. They they viewed the current federal state as essentially a continuation of the Nazi state. Yes, exactly, and that's that's um, that's what's so interesting about it. And and I would argue that's what makes 1968 uh, in, in Germany um, so. Um, uh, so intense. It's what gives um, the, the confrontation, the generational clash that took place in, in, in Germany in the 60s and that culminated in 1968. Um, it's what gave it such um, such a, a kind of sharp edge that it didn't have um, in, uh, in, in other countries. Yeah, because in our country, or when I say our country, the United States and in other countries, often their parents are, they're the greatest generation or whatever Tom Brokaw calls them. They're, but their parents were were the, the generation that had something legitimately they felt to be shamed of, and they were, um, and if they felt that these people were still in power in one way or another, then it, then certainly it adds a entirely different dimension to their anger towards their parents. Yes, exactly. I mean, this um, c- contrast between the greatest generation in uh, in the U.S. and um, uh, the, the so-called Auschwitz generation in um, in West Germany is is one that uh, it's a point that I mentioned in the book. Um, and I think that's absolutely right. It seems to me that um, 1968, everywhere, you know, from um, the US to the UK to France to Germany to um, Prague to Mexico City um, to Tokyo, everywhere, this was essentially a um, clash between the wartime generation, in other words, the generation that had experienced World War II and the post-war generation. And one of the paradoxes about 1968 is you have these simultaneous um, protest movements in so many different places around the world where in each case the context is so different, the immediate causes are so different, often the demands are very different, and yet there's clearly something linking these um, these very disparate movements. Um, and uh, so, so that there are commonalities between these protest movements um, in, in different parts of the world, and, and, and protests against the Vietnam War was a very striking example of that. And yet, there are also these um, the, these um, very important um, uh, differences. And you're so quite how- right as well that you're quite right as well that there was this, there was um, in fact not just a perception that there were continuities between the Nazi era and the post-war Federal Republic. I mean, this was a reality that um, there had, you know, it, it, in particular that that um, uh, people who had been um, who had held important positions within the Nazi um, bureaucracy, for example, then were rehabilitated after uh, the war in the context of the, of the Cold War and in the context of the reconstruction of um, West Germany. Uh, and, um, and so it began to look to uh, young people who were growing up in West Germany as if there were these continuities, and they then took the further step, which was to conclude not just that there were these biographical continuities between certain individuals who had who had played key roles in in the Third Reich and then had gone on and who had been rehabilitated and gone on to play um, key roles in the Federal Republic. They went from believing that to believing there was somehow a structural continuity, and that ultimately that um, the Federal Republic was a Nazi state. You, know, you wrote something I actually wrote down. I thought it was so perceptive um, in, I think it was your first chapter, and I'm going to read it here. It said, um, over the next decade, some leading members of the student movement would adapt theory in increasingly bizarre ways that took them further and further away from reality. Ultimately, they would create an entirely enclosed hermetic logic that could um, be used to justify almost anything while blinding them to the glaringly obvious. To me, that seems like as perfect of a description of 
Ulrika Meinhof's writings over the course of the 60s as I've ever read. Um, you can see her at the very beginning sort of dancing around this notion of, well, some of what's going on is sort of like what happened in the National Socialist era. And by the end of the 60s, it was, this is Nazism. These are Nazis. Yeah. There's no there's no attempt to actually justify it. It's just a given. And, um, and, and it seems like what she was doing was was typical of what a lot of people were doing it, it was this it would it, it became a given and it became a fact by the end of the 60s something that was hardly even um what was sort of danced around at the beginning of the 60s yes i mean Ulrika meinhof is a very interesting figure um uh because um I mean, she 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 is one of the figures who who links i think the the, the west german student movement with um um, the Bader Meinhof group, um, as it later became, um, and she's, I think, compared to um, other members of the Bader Meinhof group, she was one of the much more intellectual figures within a very, very intelligent woman uh, who'd been a journalist and a, and a columnist for this uh, left-wing magazine called Concrete um, um, in the in the sixties, and she. Um, in a sense, more than anybody else, embodied this idea of um, um, the, co the continuities between um, the Third Reich and the Federal Republic. She wrote a very famous column criticizing Franz Josef Strauss, the um, Bavarian Christian Democrat, comparing him to Hitler and was subsequently sued for libel. And she won her case and became a huge celebrity in the Federal Republic. And so she was very much this sort of, uh, almost a sort of the conscience of the Federal Republic. And what is so striking is that then she becomes um, not just a terrorist, but um, but um, it, it, her her rhetoric uh, when when she's um, uh, the voice of the Bader Meinhof group in the in the seventies um, um, is um, I mean it's so striking the, the the kind of the way that her logic um, she continues to to make all these constant references to Nazism, but um, she ends up using them to justify um, quite extraordinary things, like for example. The uh, 1972 Munich Olympics and the Israeli athletes are kidnapped. She's by she's in prison already by this time, but she writes this um, very striking communique in which she justifies the killing of the Israeli athletes essentially as an anti-fascist, anti-imperialist um, um, act. And so she see she continues to see it within this context of of um, anti-Nazism essentially. Um, but um, what she's actually justifying is um, is um, Essentially, the the you know the murder of um, of um, Israelis. You know, it, it when you're speaking of the the urban guerrillas, there's some very specific things that happened that seem on the outside so overtly anti-Semitic that it's hard to imagine internally that when they came to the decision to do these things, the various things that happened. I'm thinking specifically of Dieter Kunzelmann and this effort to. Um, to burn down a, a, a synagogue in Berlin. Yeah. And I'm thinking also of Ulrike Meinhof's statement, which you just brought up. I'm thinking of the, um, in 76, the Entebbe hijackings yeah. where they separated the Jews from the Gentiles coming off this yeah. uh, plane. And I'm thinking these are so overtly anti-Semitic that how could they internally even even not recognize how this is going to appear, even if they've sort of justified it to themselves. It seems like, so when you were describing this, this, uh, 
this internal hermetic uh, logic that that's just yeah. wrapped up in itself. That to me is almost the only way I can explain how somebody could make a decision to to do these kinds of things because they seem so far off the off the wall. What what are your thoughts about how they could arrive at that? I mean, couldn't don't you think that they or do you think that they even recognized that this could have been from no other reason uh, an external perspective? It could these actions could have been perceived. Um, extremely poorly in light of the history of their country, or are they not thinking about that? Well, it's an absolutely fascinating question. I mean, I'm not sure that I have a, a simple answer to that question. In, in a sense, it, it's one of the things that that, um, that drew me to this subject. And I think, in, in a way, to understand um, to understand how this was possible, you have to sort of follow the whole story from the beginning. Um, so, you know, the the the, the West German student movement begins. Um, in June 1967, essentially, um, uh, very much at the time of the Six-Day War. Um, and um, the Six-Day War plays quite an interesting role for um, the West German New Left, uh, where not quite overnight, but within a very short space of time, their view of the Middle East um, very, very quickly changes. Essentially, they go from having a, a sort of pro-Israeli position to, to having a very vehemently anti-Israeli um, a position they view Israel essentially as what they call a, a, a bridgehead of American imperialism in, in the Middle East. And what it seems to me happens is that within a very, very short space of time, they develop um, a, a sort of a a sort of an obsession, essentially, with Israel. And Israel fits into a kind of a very black and white view of the world that they have, which is that, um, which is that um, uh, the, West, well, the West Germany is a fascist state um, and that um, uh, it, it supports and is supported by the United States, which is um, itself um, uh, has elements of, uh, of fascism. And then Israel is a sort of third part of this kind of triangle, as it were. So they see Israel essentially as a fascist state, too. Um, and um, one, one of the very interesting questions, I think, that this whole history of the West German New Left and, and the 1968 generation in Germany raises is this um, very difficult question of where criticism of Israeli policy ends and where anti-Semitism begins. Um, and you mentioned these two very, very clear examples of anti-Semitism that um, you have in the story of the 1968s in Germany, which is, which is the, this, the first one is in on the 9th of November 1969, where Dieter Konzelmann, who's a key figure in the West German student movement, who started something called Kommune 1, a, a commune in West Berlin, puts, as you, as you mentioned, a bomb in the Jewish Community Center in West Berlin on the anniversary of Kristallnacht, the Nazi pogrom in 1938. Um, and it's only recently emerged in the last few years that, in fact, it was um, uh, you know, a member of the student movement, Dieter Kronzelmann, who was behind this. Um, and then the second very, very clear example of anti-Semitism, as, as you again mentioned, is um, the Entebbe hijacking in 1976, where two West German terrorists who belonged to groups that had grown out of the West German student movement in Frankfurt, um, um, together with two Palestinian terrorists, uh, hijack an Air France jet, and then, as you mentioned, separate the Jewish passengers from the non-Jewish passengers. Not the Israeli passengers from the non-Israeli passengers, but specifically the Jewish passengers from the non-Jewish passengers. And they release the, um, the, um, the non-Jewish passengers and, 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 and hold on to the, um, the Jewish passengers. Those are the two really, really clear examples of outright anti-Semitism. But what's so interesting is that there are 
other examples that are in this kind of grey area between um, criticism of Israeli policy and um, and anti-Semitism. And, and I think I would probably include the um, example of Ulrika Meinhof's communique um, after the 1972 Munich Olympics um, um, uh, incident uh, uh, in, in that category where when you read it, it's hard to wonder, it's hard not to wonder, sorry, whether uh, whether there, there, there is um, uh, anti-Semitism uh, that, that's, 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 that's um, beneath the surface here, but it's not such a clear-cut example as in Tebe or the, the bomb in the Jewish community center. Um, and so the question, I think, becomes, um, is this um, a pathology that we're talking about, a couple of um, kind of crazy anti-Semitic individuals um, like Dieter Kunzelmann or like Winfried Berzer, the guy who was involved in the Entebbe hijacking, or are we talking about an ideology that says something more broader, more uh, says something broader about the, um, the 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 thinking of the West German student movement and the West German New Left um, in uh, in general? And I, I think that's to some extent an open question. I mean, I would slightly argue that um, uh, I mean, not everybody I think who who who's written about this um, history would agree with me, but um, I tend to think that there was a this this undercurrent of anti-Semitism that had to do with the um, unresolved um, Nazi past, and in particular to do with the relationship between the, the 1968 generation and their parents, that there was a strong tendency um, to actually try to exonerate their parents. And you can see that, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's not difficult to see that, um, that, um, that there's a way in which, um, for example, calling the um, Israelis Nazis or describing what was going on in the occupied territories immediately after the Six-Day War as uh, comparable in some way to the Holocaust has a kind of exonerating function for the um, 1968 generation because it essentially um, suggests, you know, if, if, if that were true, which clearly it's not, then it would suggest that um, the Holocaust isn't unique because there's other Holocaust going on in the occupied territories and the Germans aren't uniquely evil, their parents aren't uniquely evil because the Israelis are doing kind of the same thing in the occupied territories. So it's a kind of exonerating projection um, um, that I think is going on. What do you think the um, the, the impact of... Um, <laughs> it's kind of a weird way to look at this, but I've often wondered... Um, in in the American student movement, particularly the one the part that turned violent, like the Weather Underground and other yeah. stuff, there's always um, a strong um, a, a per percentage of members of that movement that are Jewish, basically. And in Germany, <laughs> there wasn't many for obvious reasons. Yeah. And I sometimes wonder if the, if it had been a mirror of like the American movement like the Weather Underground, if people like Dieter Kunzemann and, and others might have thought twice about doing something so overtly um, shocking as his efforts to, to bomb or fire bomb the, uh, the, the, um, the synagogue, because there would have been somebody in that movement that would have just, just said, hey, wait a second, um, I get what you're trying to do, but burning down a synagogue is the wrong thing. And they might say that from the perspective of also being Jewish. So I, I often wonder what the effect of the fact that their parents had basically eliminated Jewish people from the natural constituency that would have been part of these groups, what kind of effect that had on them. I mean, to me, that just that element alone might have contributed to um, this this uh, 
this hermetic logic system that that doesn't incorporate you know the possibility that maybe we should think about how this is perceived from the outside world. But I don't know. Maybe they would have continued to go that direction anyway. It's an in, it's an interesting speculation. I mean, um, you're absolutely right. That it, I mean, it's it's strike it's striking that it's striking that um, I mean, if you look at the student movement, for example, in France, um, um, that you know that reached its climax in May of, of 1968, um, sort of you know several of the of the leading um, figures in the student movement were Jewish. Um, and um, um, the, as you say, that wasn't the case, obviously, in, in the West German student movement. One of the interesting um, figures in the French student movement who happened to be Jewish was Daniel Cohn-Bendit, who then, after um, the uh, événement in uh, May 68, comes to visit West Germany. And, um, um, and then when he tries to return to France, um, the French authorities don't let him return. So he then ends up staying in Germany and becomes a key figure in um, the um, New Left in Frankfurt and, and there's a major influence on Joschka Fischer, who's one of the big characters in, in my book. And um, and he adopts um, a similar attitude towards the whole question of the Middle East um, and, um, and uh, towards Israel as uh, the West German New Left does in general. And um, but you know he but he he doesn't become a terrorist. He stops short of violence against um, against Israelis, um, and then he 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 then becomes a, a a key figure in sort of reassessing later on um, the, um, the 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 attitude of the 1968 generation to um, the Middle East and to Israel and to the Holocaust. Um, and 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 Fisher, you know, he's a major influence on Fisher, who then really kind of. Um, uh, uh, starts to um, um, think about this as well. well. T- and, tell me uh, about Yoshka Fisher and, and his history, because he's obviously in 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 terms of the 1968 generation, probably the most important person from that generation to influence Germany over the last decade. So, yes. what what kind of a progression did he have from then till now? And I'm thinking specifically how you opened your book with uh, this amazing Congress where they're trying to. The, yeah. the, the the Green Party is trying to pass a resolution. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, Fisher Fisher's a, a absolutely fascinating figure. Um, he, I mean, my, my book my book um, is is about um, the the nineteen sixty eight. It follows the nineteen sixty eight generation from the sixties through to the nineties, and and in particular, I look at the Red Green government um, in in Germany between nineteen ninety eight and two thousand five, uh, in which he's a key figure. He's the foreign minister. And um, in 1968 itself, um, Fischer, he's one of the younger members of the 1968 generation, was born in 1948. And in 1968 itself, he doesn't play a key part. He's a member of the SDS, which is the leading West German student organization. But he's a kind of a marginal figure in 68. And he's affected, in a sense, more by the kind of, the kind of, um, the, 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 um, the dissolution of the West German student movement than by the student movement itself. Um, and so then he goes through this kind of journey um, uh, from 1968 onwards that goes initially via a group called Revolutionary Struggle, uh, kind of radical um, uh, uh, anti-capitalist um, Marxist group in Frankfurt in the early 70s that uh, specializes in um, 
uh, occupying houses in Frankfurt and then fighting pitch battles with the um, Frankfurt police. Um, and for Fischer, um, Entebbe, the Entebbe hijacking becomes this kind of turning point for him because he actually knew uh, Vincent Berzer, who was the um, who was one of the two uh, German terrorists who were involved in that hijacking. It was Vincent Berzer and his uh, girlfriend, someone called Brigitte Kuhlemann. And um, uh, they came from the same circles in Frankfurt. Fischer knew them both, um, or he certainly knew uh, Vincent Berzer. And uh, this, for, this for Fischer is a, is a, is a, a kind of a wake-up call, essentially, where um, uh, he realizes that... Um, the um that uh, the 1968 generation was perhaps not quite as diff- not quite so different from um its parents generation as it initially thought it was um because the sheer the, the you know the parallels between what um what happens in Entebbe and um you know the um the Nuremberg laws and and um and even um Auschwitz itself are so striking that um this um this kind of shocked him deeply, and then for the next few years, um, uh, in the uh, aftermath also of the German autumn, which is this big bloodbath uh, at the end of 1977, where uh, a series of um, terrorist uh, attacks take place, um, Joschka Fischer does lots of soul searching, and then eventually kind of re-emerges in the early 80s through the Green Party, um, and finally ends up as German Foreign Minister in 1998. And then what's so interesting is that um, immediately after he becomes foreign minister, immediately after the red-green government comes to power, the Kosovo war happens. And um, Germany is um, faced with this decision uh, of whether to um, take part in the NATO military intervention. And and at this point, of course, they've hardly taken part in any type of intervention. They've sort of stayed on the sidelines. They famously declined to provide troops to Vietnam. And so this is a big deal. Exactly. Um, so this eventually becomes the first time that uh, Germany sends troops into combat uh, since World War Two, uh, and it's particularly um, um, ironic in a sense, but also fitting in a, in a, in a different sense that um, that it's Joschka Fischer as foreign minister who does this, because the parallels again between um, what uh, between ethnic cleansing in in, in Kosovo and um, uh, again, the Holocaust are, are so striking that um, uh, this actually is, is one of the ways that Joschka Fischer um, uh, justifies uh, sending German troops into um, uh, into, into combat is um, is that we have, as Germans, uh, a particular responsibility to prevent a repetition of Auschwitz. And I argue in the book essentially that he tries to base um, German foreign policy on this uh, single premise of um, um, contrition for Auschwitz. Well, it was interesting because the the people opposing this effort they had essentially stated their basis on opposition to all intervention, any type of war. That's exactly. the downside. He's saying, you know what? There's competing things going on, and there's a much worse thing that um, that is that is equally important to base our decisions on, and that is this this idea that we should never again let the Holocaust happen. And his his at least at that point his uh, argument won correct exactly i mean the the debate about the kosovo war 
uh, in Germany, and, and I, I was working at the time for a British newspaper, The, the Observer, um, in, in Berlin at that time. And the debate about the Kosovo War in Germany um, was entirely um, based on these parallels with um, with World War Two and with the with the Nazi past. So again, you know, just as just as um, 1968 in Germany was slightly different from 1968 everywhere else because of the because of the Nazi past. So 35 years later, the debate about the Kosovo War was slightly different in Germany than it was in the U.S. or in Britain um, because of the um, because of these implicit parallels that people on both sides of the argument were drawing with um, with World War II and with the Holocaust. So on one side, uh, and, and, and this debate was happening particularly on on the um, on the left and particularly um, uh, among the 1968 generation, who by this time were essentially the establishment. They were in power in politics, but also in the in, you know, key figures in the media and so on. And on one side of that debate, you had people who were arguing that because of the Nazi past and because of um, German history. Germany couldn't possibly send troops into um, into combat again, and certainly not in the Balkans, a place where um, in Yugoslavia, in a, pla- a place where um, the Wehrmacht had committed atrocities um, during World War II. And then on the other side of the argument, you had people saying, well, precisely because of the Nazi past, we and, and we have a special responsibility to prevent. Um, um, uh, another genocide. Uh, that's precisely why we need to take part. Uh, we have a, we have a greater responsibility even than other countries like the U.S. or Britain uh, to to um, to stop this happening. Um, and this debate happens um, above all within the Green Party, Joschka Fischer's party, um, uh, which was kind of divided between, on the one hand, um, essentially the sort of pacifist group within the the Greens, for whom never again war was a kind of a mantra that was one of their fundamental principles to to prevent um to prevent another war but that principle then comes into conflict with the with a with another key principle within the greens uh, particularly among the so-called realist group around Joschka Fischer for whom preventing uh, genocide is even more important than preventing uh, another war so it becomes this battle essentially between these two slogans never again war and never again Auschwitz um, and Fisher argues that um, actually never again Auschwitz has to um, um, take precedence, and in the, in the end he manages to persuade his um, his party that that's the right thing to do, and to send German troops as part of the NATO military, military intervention. So a couple of years after this, um, Fisher Fisher's uh, past um, kind of came back up um, again when Ulrike Meinhof's daughter. Um, promoted and published this famous photo um, of him beating up a cop at a at a at a at a, at a, a demonstration or, or or attacking a police officer yeah. demonstration. Um, tell me about how that played out in Germany and what it did to Fischer's reputation. Well, this was in the um, at the beginning of two thousand one, uh, and the context for this was that um, another of Fischer's friends from back in the 70s from this group called Revolutionary Struggle, someone called Hans-Joachim Klein, who um, had um, um, also become a terrorist. Um, in this case, not um, uh, the same group uh, called Revolutionary Cells that carried out the Entebbe hijacking, um, but um, a- a- another group around um, Carlos, the Venezuelan terrorist Carlos, um, 
he had been on the run for years uh, and um, was finally um, caught uh, and was um, uh, about to go on trial in uh, in Germany in the beginning of 2001. And um, to coincide with the beginning of the trial, Stern magazine in Germany managed to find these uh, series of, um, of photographs showing Fischer, sort of sequence of, of, of images showing... Um, Fisher wearing a, a motorcycle helmet and leather jacket, um, beating up uh, a policeman at a demonstration in Frankfurt in 1973. And um, these photos didn't really show anything new. Um, really, everybody by this stage knew about Fisher's past, but they brought it to life in quite a striking way because you um, saw this sequence of pictures starting with... Um, uh, Fisher face to face with this policeman, and then in the final picture in the sequence, he's um, he's um, the, the policeman's on the ground, and and um, and, and Fisher's um, together with a, a couple of other um, members of his group are, are beating up this policeman. Um, and uh, so so what happened was um, that following the publication of those pictures. Um, there was suddenly another huge debate about the 1968 generation in general, about its links with terrorism, and um, about Fisher's past in general, whether it was acceptable for somebody with this kind of past to um, to be um, to be foreign minister. Um, and in a sense, what's um, so interesting about it is, um, I mean, in the end, Fisher managed to ride out this storm and and held on to his job and. Uh, uh, but what's actually even more interesting about it is that um is that um you know then um less than i mean a few months later really um nine eleven happened and suddenly the issue of terrorism is um is suddenly uh, once again a, a very live one um and um uh the red green government is still in power fisher is still foreign minister and suddenly faces um uh, a, a, a massive crisis to do with terrorism of a, in some ways a very different kind, but in some ways a very similar kind to um, the terrorism in West Germany in the 70s. And I look at it as kind of an, a remarkable bookend because you look at the, 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 the protests of 67 and 68 and 69 and, and you're talking about millions of Germans in the streets and they're protesting both the American government, but they're protesting the the German government's role in supporting the American government in Vietnam and in in 2003 there was big big demonstrations in Germany but effectively they were supporting their government for their decision to stand up to the Americans um uh sort of demand that Germans participate in their in their coming war against Iraq. It seemed like kind of a bookend and it seemed like in a sense um there was you know there was the 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 notion in the late sixties that uh that I think Rudy Duchka put forth that that uh we should take this long march through the institutions and sort of um sort of take over from within some of these governmental things. And in a sense, that's kind of what Fischer and some of these others did. And, and uh, they were in a position to have their government actually say no, um, as opposed to continue supporting it. I mean, that would be my take on it. It was, it was somewhat of a, of a remarkable bookend to how these demonstrations fared 30 years earlier, 40, 35 years earlier. Now, do, do, uh, I noticed you brought up uh, Klein. He's an interesting case because he 
his mother, my understanding, uh, was Jewish and and was in a concentration camp in, um, I believe, in Germany and committed suicide shortly yeah. after the war. Is that true? Sorry. Sorry. I, uh, say that again? I'm sorry. My understanding is Klein's mother, uh, Hans Joachim Klein's mother, was um, was in a concentration camp short and and committed suicide shortly after uh, the war and and there there's a couple of documentaries that have him interviewed and in both cases he talks about how he was going to be part of that Entebbe raid and he begged off of it he said he had injuries which he did he had severe injuries from the OPEC um, takeover but he says he mostly begged off it because he started to realize the tenor of this hijacking um, and how it was really overtly going after Israelis, I'm sorry, uh, Jewish people. And yeah. it was that hijacking that caused him to, to, um, to, to, to leave the terrorist movement, to mail his gun into Der Spiegel magazine and, yeah. and, uh, and stuff like that. So my, my, um, what I find remarkable about him is is why I mean he he was my understanding he's more of an enforcer he wasn't a particularly intellectual person but why somebody like him wouldn't have more of a say in these decisions I mean uh, Bosa famously I don't know if this is apocryphal or not but when they were separating the Jews from the the Gentiles coming off this plane uh, 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 one of the passengers held up his his tattoo from Auschwitz. And said, "Listen, you are doing the same thing your parents did." And Bosa yeah. supposedly said, "No, no, I, I'm I'm not a Nazi. I'm an idealist." Yeah, which is just it, 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 if that's true, it just so shows how they've completely internalized their logic system. So no, I just exactly, yeah. Yes, I mean, so, we're, we're, yes, it's, it's, we're sort of back to, to to your earlier question about how how they weren't able to see these. Um, these um, contradictions. Uh, it, it is absolutely, um, it is absolutely extraordinary. You know, I, I um, talking to you and talking to some other people. I've noticed that the people that I talked to that lived through that generation, because you're in, you're like um, almost, you're like almost, you're about my age. You're like thirty eight, thirty nine. Yes, exactly. Okay, and and I'm, I, I was born in sixty eight. So, right. and I noticed talking to people um, that are our age and younger. We seem to have a much more um, a much different take on it than people that were of that generation. It seems to me that it's only recently that a lot of the scholarly works and a lot of the popular works about this have seemed to take a much more um, progress not progressive a much more rational take on this. I, I'm not so sure that people of that generation can adequately examine. Uh, the influence of the Holocaust in the way their decisions were made back then, or or can adequately examine how um, how things transpired because I guess they were so close to it. That's one of the reasons I found your book so amazing and refreshing because you sort of um, you you detail this history in a very rational, a very uh, factual basis in a way that I haven't really seen much before. It's almost like it maybe they were too close to this. What, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think I think with any sort of um, with with it, with anything like this, having some distance, you know, often often helps, doesn't it? Um, um, I think it's right that um, I mean, I, I I I certainly have more distance from it. In, I suppose on two levels. One is in terms of of not being of that generation myself, but the second 
point is probably also not being German. Um, that um, means that um, I'm looking at this very much as, a, as an outsider, which you know can be, I suppose, an advantage or a disadvantage. On the, on the one hand, as you, as you say, it perhaps allows you to be a little bit um, more inject- objective in some ways and allows you to, um, um, to to stand back from it slightly. I suppose on the other on the other hand, though, it could mean that. Um, um, certainly, some people who, who lived through that period have have um, said to me that uh, it's difficult to really imagine um, to understand 1968 if you weren't actually there. Um, the, um, the 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 idealism, I suppose, as as you as you just said. Um, I when I read about that period, I do uh, as somebody who grew up in the in the 70s and 80s. I do find it quite difficult to um, to imagine really the um, I suppose the the idealism, but also the kind of innocence of that um, of that era. Um, and it seems to me that part of the explanation, for example, what you described earlier, this kind of extraordinary inability of the um, West German New Left to um, understand that um, what they were doing, for example, in the Entebbe hijacking um, was in some ways reminiscent of what their parents were doing. I, I think that's partly um, uh, to do with this kind of radical innocence they have. It strikes me also when I read um, even, for example, Rudy Dutschka, you know, who, who wasn't a terrorist uh, by any means, um, when you read his speeches, and um, in th- you know, three times in one sentence he uses the word "kampf," yeah. um, which just kind of jumps out at me when you know when I when I read those speeches, um, and um, but he used it in a radically innocent way. To me, as as somebody who's 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 much younger and who's who's a Brit, um, seeing that word "kampf" in German three times immediately kind of uh, makes me um, think of the way that the Nazis also um, fetishized that word "kampf." Um, but I think um, he just simply didn't realize he used it in a in a in a in a radically in, in, you know, innocent way. And yet, it seems to me probably was influenced by um, by um, the whole Nazi period more than he actually realized. You know, one thing looking at this period in the in the mid to late sixties, I, I see in Germany definitely more so than any other country is the importance of um, of uh, the university system, the importance of the intellectual class to to and, and how how well versed these students were in this. I mean, it was really extraordinary how much they internalized um, what they were learning from the, 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 the Frankfurt School, Marcuse, and, and these others. And this wasn't really played out in America. It was a more, I guess, a visceral thing. And one of the reasons I bring that up is because the thing that when I look back on the era that is always, I've come to accept that this is what they believed, but sort of internally, it's hard for me to understand how, if I was a um, German proto-terrorist in, the ni- in 1970, how I could have possibly thought that, well, I'm going to um, attack the German state because the German state is fundamentally Nazi-ish or fundamentally Nazis, and there and the people are going to see how they respond with this giant response, and they're going to rise up and to attack the state and bring about the revolution. And it seems insanity, especially in retrospect, to think that the German people were sitting around waiting for that, but. 
That's exactly what they did feel. And and when you read their the contemporaneous documents, you realize that's what they assumed would happen. And I can only assume that's because they had spent the past five to ten years basically being told that's the way it works. This is how the the socialist struggle is going to happen. And so it so it, it became kind of an assumption in the way that that their attitudes about classifying their parents' generation as fundamentally Nazi in the federal republic became just an assumption. Um, what, are, what are your thoughts on that, on the intellectual basis of so much of their actions in the 60s and 70s? Yes, I mean, I think this is, this is another thing that differentiates um, 1968 um, in Germany and the new left in Germany from um, its counterparts elsewhere is this um, Extraordinary emphasis, really, on uh, Marxist theory, um, and this is this is um, the, the, the quote that you um, from my book that you you read out earlier about the way that um, the way that the way that the German uh, New Left, West German New Left, um, sort of developed theory in these increasingly um, uh, bizarre ways. Um, it, it, that, that's kind of what um, what I was driving at there. That. Um, Theory just played a, a, a sort of an extraordinarily important role for the West German student movement in the way that it didn't, even for the French um, um, uh, student movement, let alone the American student movement. Uh, Marcuse was a big figure everywhere, I suppose. He was a kind of an inspirational figure for the um, new left um, in, in, in the U.S. and and, and, and everywhere. But, um, um, but he was actually... Um, and he, and he was he was important for certain sections of the West German student movement, but um, it was the Frankfurt School, Adorno and Horkheimer, also Marcuse, um, who um, who who really influenced the um, the West German student movement, and they I think engaged with this theory much more seriously than than their counterparts elsewhere did. Um, I kind of almost have the impression when I, you know, on uh, from the interviews that I did for the book and 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 when I when I was reading about um, um, this period um, in West German history that um, they were kind of almost pop stars for um, for the West German student movement and you know, uh, you know, someone like you know uh, Adorno or Horkheimer was kind of to uh, the West German. Um, Baby boomers, what you know, Jimi Hendrix was, um, you know, in Britain or in or in Germany. I mean, they kind of worship these um, uh, the, these um, these Marxist theoreticians, um, who you know, many of whom incidentally were also Jewish, which I think was part of probably the the probably part of the attraction. Um, but it's true that then what they do is they take this theory and they develop it um, in um, um, increasingly um, bizarre directions. I think there's another aspect, though, to this as well, which is that there's a way in which I mean, I think there's there's a there's another reason why um, in West Germany, in particular, young people were drawn to Marxist theory because um, Marxist theory did give them an explanation of the Nazi past um, that um, um, that had this um, exonerating effect that um, that I spoke about earlier. Um, by essentially making capitalism responsible for Nazism and um, and uh, also for the Holocaust itself, um, again, it sort of let their parents um, off the hook. Um, actually, what you know, it, it made the German, it turned the German people into victims rather than perpetrators. So there was this kind of slightly odd coexistence between. Um, rhetoric within the West German student movement that talked about um, 
um, that talked about the Auschwitz generation described their parents as um, as you know the perpetrator generation or the Auschwitz generation. Uh, but then on the other hand, uh, at a deeper level, um, their kind of analysis um, actually exonerated their parents' generation and the West German people as a whole. Yeah. Now, I'm sure you've um, followed or heard about in the U.S. our amazing efforts to get the most basic kind of healthcare reform passed. And, <laughs> and when that happened, um, there was a subset of Americans that very quickly decided that um, Obama and what he was trying to do was the equivalent of Hitler. So you would yeah. see signs of him with a Hitler mustache of, of making yeah. reference to what we were doing. And, and I was struck in a couple ways. One, by how fantastically inappropriate it was. Yeah. But, yeah. um, two, it sort of seemed to have a parallel in the sixties yeah. in Germany. Uh, the, the irony there is they were talking about legitimate real former Nazis. When yeah. they were calling Kiesinger a Nazi, it, this is an actual former Nazi. But in a sense, it was the same thing because Germany was not a Nazi state at the time. And certainly America isn't a Nazi state. And I, I just no. wonder about exactly. where that language leads to no exactly yeah that's the i i thought of i i mean i immediately um uh you know thought of um of that too when i when i was um uh following uh, what was going on in 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 the u.s um um last year um i we i had a an i was at an event in uh, in new york um at the end of last year with paul berman and uh talking about about my book and um he um, made exactly this point as well that he said that the, the the sort of interesting philosophical question that that this history uh, about which he has written as well uh, raises is this question of what is as he put it what is a Nazi like thing in the present and um, he talked about the way that um, um, you know people used to compare Nixon to Hitler and now people compare Obama to Hitler and so on um, and um, this is exactly what the um, I mean in in a sense it all started with the um with the um the, the west german uh, um student movement um it seems to me that certainly in the context of west germany that it was the it was the post war generation who first started to throw around these comparisons with um with nazis um Ulrike Kemeinhoff, as we mentioned earlier um first started to do this in her columns and um um and you're right that initially these were often um, uh, people who were actually, uh, you know, f f former Nazis. But there was a kind of an inflationary use of these comparisons and these parallels. So that what started off as um, as um, people who actually did have Nazi past, the most famous example probably is um, is um, Hans Globke, who um, was um, chief of staff for Adenauer, the first chancellor in uh, post-war West Germany, who had been a key official in the interior ministry during the Nazi era uh, and had written the commentary to the Nuremberg Laws. Um, it starts so off he with... He was the one that, that suggested when all Jewish women need to be named Sarah and stuff like that. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Um uh, and it started off with um, with with people like that, but then very quickly, um, it, it, this inflationary use of of these comparisons um, uh, starts, and um, and um, within a very short space of time, um, the West German student movement is um, comparing, you know, USGIs in Vietnam with the Einsatzgruppen, you know, the um, 
the um, uh, uh, the the the, the um, killing squads who are operating behind the um, lines of the Eastern Front during the war, um, and um, and then you know the Israelis are being compared to to Nazis, um, and um, so this kind of inflationary use of of, of these comparisons starts um, starts with them, and then it continues in a sense right um, right through to the Kosovo War, where you know Milosevic is is um, is being compared to Hitler essentially. Um, and um, I mean, again, this is one of these very interesting questions um, that um, I think that this history raises: is is um, how do you? Um, I mean, what role should this um, history have, um, um, and, and what is appropriate to compare to Nazism and, uh, and to Hitler and so on? Um, the point that Paul Berman made um, at this um, event that we uh, both spoke at last year was that. Um, um, it, it, you have to be able to make these comparisons, but you, the important thing is to do so in a lucid way. Yeah, I, I, I created, I think I sent you or mentioned in my one of my emails to you, I, I created a blog about a year ago as a joke, kind of. I called it worsethanhitler.net. And the whole point yeah. was I was going to find examples of people making comparisons to the Nazis or Hitler and kind of make fun of them because it was sort it was things like somebody was writing a letter to their local, um, newspaper calling the editor essentially a member of the Gestapo for canceling his favorite cartoon. And I yeah. thought, well, that that's funny. And you can, of course, point out why that's a crazy thing to do. But then quickly, that whole Tea Party slash healthcare thing happened. And it just it, it stopped being funny for me. It, I, I uh, stopped doing the site because it just seemed scary. And it, uh, and because it, you're just reading about these people who have no clue, and it didn't, and it seemed like there could be real consequences to it. Um, I, I I'm not sure what there is. I'm definitely not a believer in. Well, you should not let people. You should ban people from making these illusions or statements. That said, nobody seems to be putting a lot of thought into them, or even more scary. They have put a lot of thought in them, and they've decided this is the perfect analogy. You, you talk to a lot of these people, like even before the healthcare thing came up, they decided Obama was—I don't know what they thought he was—but they they thought he was building these. Um, they called them FEMA death camps, yeah, and it was yeah, the, yeah. it was it was complete baloney. But they had decided this was exactly how when Hitler came to power, he started building concentration camps. They saw all of these parallels and yeah. they lined them all up. And the scary thing to me was that they had actually put an enormous amount of thought into it, not a little bit of thought into it. Mm. So, so yeah, what got uh, you interested in this particular subject? Um, well, I um, have always um, been um, interested in German history and uh, in particular, I, I guess, in the... Um, in the the Nazi past, um, my mother's Dutch, um, and uh, I sort of grew up to some extent with um, with this history uh, from her side of the family, in particular from my uh, grandmother, who lived through the war, and um, my um, grandfather was um, in the Dutch resistance and was in a concentration camp for a while. So it's to some extent sort of something I've I've grown up with. Um, and then I, I, um, I studied German um, at university and uh, lived in Germany. And then I was, after I graduated from university, I became a journalist and, and I was working as um, a reporter for The Observer, um, as I think I mentioned earlier, um, mm -hmm. at the beginning of the Red-Green government, so the, the Schroeder-Fischer uh, government, um, and, um, and um, during the Kosovo War as well. 
uh, and that's when I particularly got interested in this whole subject of um, of the, the 1968 generation in um, in Germany. And you know, I suppose the, 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 it was connecting those two things: the the, the um, 1968 generation with um, with the, the, the Nazi past, um, which um, particular I found particularly fascinating. Um, and uh, the more I the more I read about it, um, uh, the more sort of complex and contradictory it seemed to me. And um, started doing some uh, magazine stories about uh, different aspects of um, uh, of this story. For example, I did a, a profile of um, Horst Mahler, who's who's another um, character in the book, who um, was um, uh, a lawyer for the West German student movement. Actually, he's the man who created then the Bader-Meinhof. Um, Group and recruited um, Andreas Bader and Gudrun Enslin. Spent most of the 70s in prison, uh, and then, um, um, round about the time of the uh, beginning of the Red Green government, came out as a neo-Nazi. Um, and um, his and, story and a, and a fantastically anti-Semitic neo-Nazi. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and and his story, you know, threw up a lot of these kind of you know very interesting questions about the 1968 generation. Uh, and the more um, the more time I kind of um, Spent reading about it and talking to people, the more um, the more complex and contradictory it seemed to me, and um, the more interested I got in it. Does Mahler strike you as a complete aberration, or somehow emblematic of of, of portions of this movie? Well, well, that's exactly that's exactly the the the, the question. It, 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 it goes back to my um, point earlier about the when we were talking about anti-Semitism. Is this a pathology or is this an ideology? And um, um, I mean, I I I I think that um, um, I mean Horsmaler is completely nuts, but yeah. I think he's nuts in quite an interesting way that does actually tell you something about um, the um, the student movement and the um, 1968 generation more generally. The way I think of it is, I mean, one of, one one of the things that's so interesting is that all these different um, key figures in the student movement all go into such different directions. Uh, and the way I think of it is that you know the two extremes, if you like, are on the one uh, on the one hand, um, Joschka Fischer, who it seems to me essentially learns the right lessons in the end from um, um, from the Nazi past um, and from the and from 1968 and from you know the the, 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 the student movement. And at the other end of the extreme, you have um, you have Horst Mahler. Um, and that in turn it throws up this um, it throws up all kinds of interesting questions about left and right. What strikes me about um, about this whole story is it suggests that the most interesting divide um, is not between left and right, but it's between liberals and anti-liberals. Um, essentially, the difference between Joschka Fischer and Horst Mahler, it seems to me, but both of whom are accused by other members of the 1968 generation of having sold out and having kind of moved to the right, essentially. Um, the difference between them is that um, Joschka Fischer becomes a liberal, liberal and reconciles himself to um, the um, to the Federal Republic and to, um, and to democracy, essentially. And um, Horst Mahler um, doesn't. He remains a revolutionary. He happens to move from the far left to the far right, and in some way changes some ways changes his his um, his thinking, but actually, the um, the more interesting difference is is um, is the is uh, across this divide of liberals against non-liberals. Yeah, 
And he, of course, is now in prison, I think, again, for I think he, he gave a Nazi salute to a reporter yeah. um, and went back to jail. It, it, yeah. from, a, from a personal standpoint, you think beyond being a neo-Nazi, he's clearly got some kind of mental issue. Why in the world would somebody do so? He's an elderly man, and yeah. it's possible he will die in prison because of this. This, huh, Yeah, crazy. I mean, he, exactly. He's constantly in and out of prison, and, and he, you know, he, he, this is, you know, he deliberately, you know, he, he tries to get himself put in prison. He deliberately tries to provoke um, um, uh, West Germany in general, and and, and obviously the, you know, the, the, probably the most provocative thing you can do is to, you know, do the Hitler salute or or um, or um, you know, begin a begin an interview uh, for a magazine um, with the, you know, with the words Heil Hitler or, or something like that, um, um, and. Um, it's part of his strategy of provocation, which incidentally is another thing that goes all the way back to um, to the 60s and the strategies of the of the student movement. Um, the bomb in the Jew, in the Jewish community centre um, was justified by Dieter Kultzmann in precisely the same way that this was um, this was um, supposed to be a provocation. It was a way to get the attention of the um, of the West German media and um, of, of West Germany as a whole, and obviously. Um, um, putting a bomb in the Jewish community center in West Berlin on the anniversary of Kristallnacht, um, you know, grabs grabs people's attention. Of course, yeah. I I actually interviewed um, Bommy Bauman last week, oh, yeah. and I was t I was talking to him about that briefly. And he, you know, it's hard to know totally because Bauman, you know, he's got forty years of experience, and he wants to obviously come across in a certain way. Yeah. But he claims, you know, we didn't know anything about that. This was entirely shocking, and it was insanity. He he called it insanity. It was crazy. Um, and I totally take him at his word. That said. I haven't got the sense that other people have claimed it was insanity to a certain extent. They may not have done it, but they didn't actually, I've never seen them on record as saying at the time that it was the wrong thing to do. Um, I think for the most part, it was just one more thing that, that a lot of people um, were somewhat, I don't know, I'd say supportive of it, but they, they didn't, I don't see a lot of these people that became terrorists or the members of commune one condemning his action at the time. So I don't know. What 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 is your think, take on now? So now so now it's it's uh, 2010. Has Germany moved on from the Holocaust? Is it in a, is are, are they just responding in a different way? Is ha, ha, what's the legacy now of the Holocaust in German society? Well, that's a that's a good question. I mean, it's it's very difficult to answer. It's something I've been thinking about recently. Actually, I'm in Germany at the moment, um, and um, um. And it's something I'm actually writing about at the, at the moment, so I've been thinking about this. Um, I mean, I think, I think in general, um, as the Holocaust recedes into history, um, it is um, um, sort of losing its. Um, um, I mean, it's becoming less important. I think, uh, you know, probably in quite a healthy way for um, for West Germany. Um, that I think is the short answer, but um, at the same time, I think there are also some slightly more complicated things going on in in um, in, in West Germany in relation to the Holocaust. Um, I, I've, um, but, but part of my book was about um, foreign policy under the Red Green government, um, and I've been thinking about this recently in the context of current German foreign policy. Um, essentially, I mean, my argument in the book was essentially that um, within the Red Green government, there were two 
almost um, distinct versions of, of foreign policy, which were represented by, um, um, on the one hand, by um, Gerhard Schroeder, the Chancellor, on the, on the other hand, by Joschka Fischer. Um, and um, um, Schroeder's version of German foreign policy, um, I mean, the, the, dif- the difference between these two visions of, of, of German foreign policy essentially was was their was their attitude towards the Nazi past. On the one hand, you have Schroeder who um, regarded the Nazi past as um, a chapter of German history that was essentially over. Um, he regarded Germany as a as a normal country that had overcome the Nazi past and and that and that um, contrition for Auschwitz should no longer be. Um, a, a relevant factor in, um, in in German foreign policy. On the other hand, you had Fischer, who essentially wanted to um, base German foreign policy on the idea of contrition for Auschwitz. Um, and um, it seems to me that um, what's happened since um, Schroeder and Fischer um, left government in 2005 is that um, Schroeder's version has kind of prevailed. Um, so that um, if you look, for example, at um, German foreign policy since uh, Angela Merkel has been chancellor, um, in some ways Merkel um, uh, believes that, um, and she, she's been described as being the most pro-Israeli chancellor that Germany's had, and she certainly believes that Germany has a special responsibility towards Israel. But beyond that, it seems to me that um, um, the Holocaust no long, is no longer particularly relevant for, um, for German foreign policy. Um, and I think the most striking example of this is um, German policy towards Iran at the moment. Even though you have a, uh, a regime that's probably the most anti-Semitic that there's been in the world, or most openly anti-Semitic that there's been in the world since, um, since World War II, um, Germany has, it seems to me, slightly... Um, there's been a, a bit of a drag on uh, attempts to um, get tougher sanctions um, against Iran. Um, Russia and China have been the real problem, but um, within the um, E3, the, the, uh, the three European countries um, who are leading um, together with the US on, on trying to get tougher sanctions, i.e. Britain and, and France and Germany, within that group, Germany has been a bit of a drag, it seems to me, which is to do with the... Um, um, economic links between um, Germany and um, Iran. Germany is the um, largest um, um, exporter to Iran after China and the largest European exporter. Um, and there's been a, a little bit of resistance um, from um, from the business community in Germany and um, and certain parts of the political establishment in Germany towards tougher sanctions on Iran because of the effects that this will have on the German export economy. And I think what's interesting about that is it illustrates the way that um, um, the um, the way that um, um, uh, the, the the Holocaust is is um, ceasing to be um, a huge factor in um, German foreign policy. And the, the other interesting aspect of this is, is if you look at um, German attitude towards um, the war in Afghanistan, um, this is something that Germany's struggled with, um, particularly since last year um, when a German colonel called in an airstrike um, that um, resulted in um, um, uh, dozens of civilian deaths. Um, this was a huge... Um, um, huge controversy in Germany, um, and it seems to me that in a sense Germans are becoming more pacifist actually than it seemed um, that they were ten years ago. So going back to this debate um, that we discussed earlier about in the context of the Kosovo War about never again Auschwitz uh, versus never again war, 
um, Fisher's argument at that time was that um, that um, never again Auschwitz should sort of trump never again war. And it looked as if at that point, after sending troops into combat in Kosovo, that Germany was kind of gradually um, uh, moving away from its um, from its kind of pacifism. It seems to me now, ten years later, um, that um, partly because of the traumatic experience of Afghanistan, that Germany is um, once again becoming more pacifist. So it seems to me that increasingly the lesson that Germany is choosing to learn from the Nazi past is no longer actually never again Auschwitz. It's actually just never again war. Yeah. You know, at, at a certain point in a, another 10 or 15 years, there literally won't be anybody alive that can even actually directly remember the war. So at a certain point, I guess they have to move on and come up with different uh, different things to drive them. It's, 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 it seems increasingly odd to have the, the Holocaust pro or con be your justification for anything when nobody alive can even remember it. So I guess at some point they'll move on. But then again, we haven't really gotten over, forgotten about our horrible slavery history in the U S so maybe it will never go away. Yeah. So, um, well, I very much appreciate, uh, your speaking with your book is fantastic. It is definitely, there, there's very few, um, as you probably aware, there's very few English language books about this subject for whatever reason, maybe because, uh, the English world isn't as interested in this, but of the few that are out there, yours is just really at the top of the heap. It is really fascinating, really well argued. And I appreciate you spending some time with me, people that are interested in reading, um, your book, which is called, tell me the name of it again. Utopia or Auschwitz, Germany's 1968 generation and the Holocaust. And you can find links to this um, on my site through Amazon to pick it up. It is fantastic, and I encourage everybody to buy it and read it. So, Hans, thank you so much for spending some time with me, and I definitely wish you the best of luck with your um, new project, which I look forward to reading as well. Is it a book, or are you working on uh, uh, magazine articles? Or what yeah, are you this is on? just it's just a, it's just a magazine uh, uh, a piece for a British magazine called Prospect about um, about German foreign policy and how it's changing. Well, I look forward to reading it. So thank you again for spending some time with you. I appreciate you uh, taking an hour of your time today to speak with me. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Cool. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bottom line.